going to be in Daniel chapter 3 and looking at the whole chapter. It is a, a fairly long chapter, but it's well known. There's lots of repetition in this chapter, but I don't want I don't want to be like a Puritan and do 14 sermons on Daniel 3 or even two sermons where they get thrown into the fiery furnace and then we end there and you all go home and cry because you don't know what's going to happen to them. Um, the, one of the cool things about uh, in Surrey, we have some um, people who uh, have moved from China and they've never heard some of these stories and they're hearing them for the first time. And they're like, wow, like this happened. And it's so nice to have people who don't know the stories, like find out what's happening as it's like live time. Whereas we've grown up, you know, and you go, oh, Daniel's friends, you know, they don't get burned by the fire and all that. Well, can we have a little more excitement when you're reading right now that they actually, uh, we have to see whether they're going to get burned. Uh, I'll leave you in suspense. How about that? So I'm not giving anything away. All right. So Daniel chapter three. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the heralds proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, 
Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. But the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, let us pray that God's word would be faithfully explained and preached today. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words and help us to remember that as soon as we call upon you as God, we can believe every word, every event that you have proclaimed to be true and that there is nothing too hard for you. And so give us faith to not only believe what we have read, but to believe in ways that will help us to be faithful like these three men that we have read of. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I, I know the sermon title says, Stand Tall, Don't You Fall. That's a great uh, Roy Orbison classic, by the way. If you are into uh, good music, you can listen to it tomorrow. Uh, today's the day for uh, good Christian music. I was listening to Robin Mark, Revival in Belfast on the way in, so a uh, bit uh, revivalistic in my preaching maybe today. We'll see how that unfolds. But I would like to change the title to a book that maybe I'll one day write called Misunderstanding Sermons by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, why do I say that? And, and by the way, 
uh, if I do write that book, you will all get a personal copy for free. Uh, and you can read into that however you wish. But uh, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 uh, is informed of his dream by Daniel and then he's given the interpretation of that dream. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. But he's not the only part of this statue, which is made up of various metals and even feet with clay, which ultimately uh, come crumbling down because of a stone. And so his kingdom comes to an end. Now, Nebuchadnezzar falls down. He's very happy that Daniel's been able to figure this out. He gives him praise and honor. But in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar seems to have either dug his heels in, misunderstood, or become defiant over what Daniel has said to him. And so what was originally in Daniel's dream ahead of gold has now turned into the defiant statue completely of gold rather than the statue we read of in chapter 2. So you have to see the connection there. Nebuchadnezzar has set up what is a skinny, tall statue of gold, completely of gold. And as we read, it is quite interesting that it's repeatedly stressed that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In fact, if you take the opening verse or two that he made an image of gold and then you count all of the other times Nebuchadnezzar set up, you have a sevenfold repetition of something that Nebuchadnezzar has done. This is a Semitic way in writing in Aramaic of emphasizing a point. Nebuchadnezzar is to be so identified with this statue that whether it's a statue of him or not, it may as well be. I'm inclined to believe that the statue may have had some uncanny resemblance to Nebuchadnezzar, but the point remains the same even if not. He is identified with this statue. And he has forgotten that it is God, as Daniel says in chapter 2, verse 21, that sets up kings and deposes kings. Now, it is interesting to me that we are told that this is set up, this statue, on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And scholars believe that this is likely in the same region area as where the Tower of Babel had been built, which is most interesting. So you have the Tower of Babel built, and now you have this statue that is built. And the point of the Tower of Babel and the point of this statue is to offer really two things to our minds. A lasting memory, which is what the statue and the tower were meant to be, but also a unifying symbol for the people connected to that. And it is a sort of worldwide unifying symbol, especially with Babel, but also this great Babylonian empire that is a worldwide empire of sorts at the time. So you have these visible symbols. They are lasting monuments depicting something that is meant to unify them around a certain type of God. And that is what we see. Now, that is interesting to us because you will note, even if you are a below average historian of recent history, that these statues, these symbols that are meant to unify people are not limited to Daniel chapter 3. 
there were statues of Mao uh, everywhere in China. Uh, you could just look at a farm and there would be this awful huge statue of Mao sitting there. It has no apparent purpose except what? To be a lasting monument of a unifying symbol of what it was meant to be. And you can Google statues of Mao and you will find no shortage of those statues in communist China. The Nazi flag and the Heil Hitler salute was what meant to be a lasting monument of a worldwide empire that unified the people of Germany. That was the intention of it. And you could have pictures of Stalin in communist Russia everywhere on walls, paintings, you name it. Pictures of Stalin, again, attempting the same thing. It is not unique to Daniel chapter 3. And in the time of Rome, shortly after the time of Christ, you were faced with having to make a confession. Caesar is Lord or... Christ is Lord. And Caesar is Lord was the unifying principle of the Roman Empire. You want to live, you want to thrive, you must say Caesar is Lord. You want to be defiant against that, Christ is Lord. And many Christians lost their lives because they would say Christ is Lord and not Caesar is Lord. You could actually sometimes get away with saying Christ is Lord so long as that was subject to also saying Caesar is Lord. And many Christians, at least so-called Christians, want to have their cake and eat it. They're the types that see the statue in Daniel chapter 3 and they'll say, you know what, in my heart I really believe there's only one true God, but I'm going to bow down. I'm going to say Caesar is Lord, but I'm also going to say Christ is Lord. And what we see in Daniel 3 and what we see with the faithful martyrs of the early church is that when it comes to matters of monumental significance in the Christian life, there is no both and. There is no gray area. It is black and white. It is either or. You are either for God or you are against Him. You will either stand or you will bow. And these men respond to this dictate that when the music begins, imagine the hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps even millions of people, hearing that music and immediately prostrating themselves before this statue. And of perhaps the millions of people who did it at the time, three, we're not told of where Daniel is at this point, we don't know, three are explicitly mentioned as not falling down. And this tells us something most important. That God's Grace to us when our lives are in jeopardy will carry us through if our faith is prepared to believe in who God really is. And you will probably know that faith is not simply something whereby you believe that God exists and Jesus died for your sins. But if that is true, if you can believe that the Son of God became flesh and died on the cross for your sins, then how can you not then believe God in everything that He says and therefore have the courage to remain steadfast in times when your faith 
is tested. And so these men not only have faith, they have courage. And courage is the sister of true saving faith. And we probably do not speak enough about Christian courage, but that will become a defining symbol of Christian faith in the next few years and decade as we think about what it means to live in Babylon, so to speak. And so the response of the three is very simple. They will not fall down. And these people who do fall down have made the point that they are not falling down. Now, what happens? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar finds out about this and he confronts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have you ever said that your uh, mom or dad is raging? Uh, you ever use that phrase, you kids? Yes, yeah, sometimes we use that. Well, um, maybe we don't use words in quite the precise biblical term because if you want to talk about someone raging, I want you to think about whether your mom or your dad has heated a furnace seven times hotter than its usual and threatened your life. Uh, Mom turning a bit red in her cheeks does not compare to Nebuchadnezzar here in a furious rage. And he asks them, is this true, what I've heard, that you aren't bowing down to the statue? And interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar's a very reasonable man. He says, listen, guys, come on now. Let bygones be bygones. Just bow down now and it will all be fine. And they say, listen, this is an easy answer for us. We're not bowing down. They've been trained in the book of Deuteronomy. And you shall only serve the Lord your God. And so Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and in his absolute fury decides that he's going to kill them. Now, I just want to make this point as we are going through. uh, It's something whereby uh, C.S. Lewis talks about the allure of the inner ring. And the allure of the inner ring is the desire that is natural to everyone in this world, apart from the grace of God, to be on the right side of the invisible line that distinguishes those from the inside and those from the outside. And what happens to human beings, whether in school, work, society, wherever it may be, is that there's this invisible line of those who are on the inside, those who belong, those who are unified, and those who are on the outside. And the insiders in Daniel chapter 3 are those who bow down to the image. The insiders is always a circle larger and greater in number than the outer circle of the outsiders. And Lewis talks about this. He says that this powerful idol of wanting to be on the inner ring, of wanting to be accepted, is such a powerful idol that of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. People get brought into this inner ring of being accepted in society, of not being outcasts, 
And these people who ordinarily years ago wouldn't have thought they were capable of believing certain things because of the power of this inner ring, all of a sudden now believe. You can look at certain leaders alive today. Their views on marriage in the early 2000s were historical views on marriage, but things have shifted so that they are now believing that marriage is not between a man and a woman. Why? It's the power of the inner ring. And we have a very powerful symbol in today's culture. It is not a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It is not the Tower of Babel. It is the LGBTQ flag. That's a very powerful symbol today. It's everywhere. You go to Clayton and you want to walk into our church in Clayton in the school where we worship, there is a flag and you have to walk under that flag unless you take a few steps to the right and there's actually another section and praise be to God, my boys go through this section and so do I where there is no flag. And it's a symbolic act. Now that symbol of the flag is representative of the cultural inner ring of society today of what you need to believe in order to be accepted. And if you do not wear this flag, at least maybe not on your sleeves, but in your heart, you will not be in this inner ring. And it is causing even many so-called Christians to want to be part of this inner ring. I remember at university, you know, even in early 2000s, things were different than they are today. We had a speaker come to university at Mount Allison and he was uh, allegedly a Christian theologian who spoke uh, from a pro-biblical homosexual point of view. And it was a talk on leadership. And one of the uh, faculty, or he was the dean of students at Mount Allison, asked a question at the end. And he's someone who had led an alpha group that I went to and gained a great deal from being part of this group. And he says, well, is there any example in the Bible that would seem to be pro-homosexual, not simply by uh, commands that may be outdated, but is there anything we can see that would be pro? And the gentleman said, yes, the story of David and Jonathan. Now, total nonsense, but what I'm saying is when the talk finished, every single person in that auditorium, including the person who had led the Alpha group and to whom I was friends with, stood up and clapped, except for myself and a young lady beside me. She's here today. I should have got on my knees and asked her to marry me right then. Because there were two people in that auditorium that didn't get up to clap. And Barb and I were them. Now I'm telling you, that wasn't enjoyable. You, she's probably not enjoying this. <laughs> this may be worse than that was. But you can do it. You can do it. By God's grace. And some of you will need to do it in your schools, in your workplaces, where you do not bow down to the idol of the flag that is currently becoming so entrenched in our society that it really is the difference between who is in and who is out. Now, what does the king do to the three when they don't conform? He condemns them. 
And when we stand up to an idol, especially an idol in society, we better be prepared to receive the wrath of that idol. And here's the irony. The irony is those who disobeyed Nebuchadnezzar's command end up living, and some of those who fell down and prostrated themselves before this idol in order to save their life ended up dying. And that reminds us of our Lord who says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And that's what happens here. It's a visible sermon of what our Lord spoke of. Now, whose servants will die, Nebuchadnezzar's or God's? Well, we find out in verses 19 to 23 when he says that the burning fiery furnace is burned seven times hotter. That's probably a bit hyperbolic in the sense that it was really hot. But notice what ends up happening in verse 23. The three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. And that should be the end of the matter. Because even those who got close died. What will happen to those who fall in? Well, what does happen? We are told in verse 24, the king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. So he'd been raging earlier. Now he's astonished. And he asks a question, did we not cast these men into the fire? And they says, yes, true, O king. And he says, but I see four men unbound. The three had been bound, thrown into the fire, and he sees four, and they're not even hurt. They're in a fire. And they're walking around. And the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, I think we are on fairly safe ground for saying this may likely have been a Christophany, a pre-incarnate revelation of Christ who is with His people in the midst of the fire. And what's interesting is 200 years earlier, Isaiah had written in chapter 43, verse 2, the following, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. I wonder, I wonder, These young men, trained as they were in the Hebrew Scriptures, the way they answer the king. Did you notice the way they answer the king? Verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, and you throw us into the fiery flames, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and... He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. You wonder if they had read Isaiah 43 verse 2 and knew that they would go through those flames, but God would be with them and that they would not be burned. And we are told in Isaiah 43 verse 2, the flames will not set you ablaze. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do when he sees this? He did what he did in chapter 2. He is astounded. He honors them. He honors their God. And they seem to be unharmed. In fact, they are unharmed. 
There's a, I'm not suggesting you watch all of the seasons, but I do think sometimes The Simpsons has some very good things about society, and uh, some of you are already a little bit concerned about that. There is one um, show with The Simpsons where Mr. Burns, he's an old fella, very weak. I mean, he's skinny, and he goes to the doctor, and the doctor tells Mr. Burns, you have every known disease. You are the sickest man alive. And everyone's wondering, well, why doesn't Mr. Burns die then if he's got every known disease? And so they say, but actually what you have is three stooges syndrome trying to get through the door. And all these diseases are sort of working with each other so that he doesn't get sick. Now, I can promise you this is not medical advice, by the way. (laughs) But Mr. Burns leaves the doctor He's got every known disease. He is the sickest man alive. And he walks out of the doctor and he says, I'm indestructible. And I love it. I'm indestructible. The Christian looks into his or her heart and you see all of these abominations, these thoughts. You see your sin weighing you down. You see how you fail time and time again. And you go, I must be the sickest person alive when I look into my heart. But the Christian is also the one who walks away from that saying, I'm indestructible. Why is that? It's because when Jesus Christ came to earth, He passed through the waters for our sake. He says to His disciples, I have a baptism. I have a baptism to undergo that you know nothing about. And that baptism was the flood of God's wrath poured out upon Him on the cross. He goes through the fire of God's wrath on the cross. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the one who goes through the waters, goes through the fire with His people. And He is the one who comes out on the other side in His resurrection. What? Untinged. That there's not even a sign of harm on His body because He has been raised from the dead. Do you know one of the most awful things about camping, besides camping, is sitting at the fire and you come home and your clothes smell just from sitting by the fire. It's an awful smell. It's one of my most awful smells. Don't ever invite me camping. And that's just from sitting by a fire. God is saying you can pass through those flames. But if you belong to Christ, you will pass through them and you will not be harmed by them. You will not even be able to be told that there is anything wrong with you because the same Lord who came to earth and lived and died is the same Lord who passed through those flames, through those waters for your sake so that you could be as protected as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the life that you are currently living. And one day Jesus will come back and there will be a fiery furnace of God's wrath and there will be no angel of the Lord to walk with those who have not bowed the knee. You see, what's the point? The point is all of these humans, whether in Genesis 11 or Daniel 3, are looking at a symbol in order to unify them, but there's only one name that can actually truly unify God's people, and that is the name that is above every name. 
It's the name of Jesus that will unify God's people around the person of Christ and nothing will be able to harm God's people. And so when you read Daniel chapter 3, you are Meshach, you are Shadrach, you are Abednego, you are saying my faith means I can go into the hottest of places in any trial and ultimately I know that I'll be walking with the Lord because He went through that hot place for me and came out unharmed just as I will. Let's pray. O Lord our God, as we all bow down to Christ and are unified around the person of Christ, we praise You that You have kept us from bowing down to other idols and yet we do see at times that willingness that awful wicked willingness in our hearts to want to be accepted and approved by the world. And so we pray that we would stand tall, that we would not fall to the idols of this world. But if we do fall, O Lord, let us fall on our knees before our Savior Jesus Christ who is able to raise us back up unharmed and indestructible. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.